I believe there's a lot of alpha left in being authentic online. Yeah. And I think it will the right people to you and it will repel the wrong people, which is great. That's what you want. Happy Wednesday and welcome to Not Boring Founders. I'm your host, Packy McCormick, and Not Boring Founders is the podcast where we just turn the microphone on and capture the conversations that I feel lucky enough to get to have with the people building the future. Today is certainly the longest and probably the most fun and interesting Not Boring Founders conversation that we've had yet. Today's guest is Amjad Massad, the CEO and co-founder of Replit. If you've been reading Not Boring for a little while, you know about Replit. I wrote a deep dive on them a few months back when they announced their $80 million Series B led by Co2, uh, which Not Boring Capital participated in. Amjad is one of my favorite and I think one of the most fascinating founders that you'll get a chance to meet. He came from Jordan where he taught himself to code and taught himself a bunch of different programming languages and then built tools to support that pursuit and then somehow ended up running this company that's worth nearly a billion dollars and that I think has the chance to kind of change what a software creator looks like, where they come from, to make coding more accessible to more people. This is one of many trends that I think will kind of start to come together and converge over the next decade that will make 2032 look so unbelievably wild and different and more creative than 2022. We go long in this conversation because there's a lot to talk about and because I really value the way that Amjad thinks about both the present and the future. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. I liked going longer form, so I would love if you liked this, let me know on Twitter that you like the longer form content. If you didn't like longer form, let me know that on Twitter too. This is a work in progress and it only works if you like listening to it. So give me the feedback before we get to the conversation though, ladies and gentlemen, the presenting sponsor of all of season two of Not Boring Founders. That's right, it's FTX US. You have heard of FTX. If you've been listening to Not Boring Founders, you've heard of them. They sponsor both the Mercedes Patronus car in F1 and Lewis Hamilton. They have the naming rights to the Miami Heat Stadium. FTX is everywhere. And they're just getting started. A couple of weeks ago, it was announced that FTX's 30-year-old multi-billionaire co-founder Sam Bankman-Fried personally bought a 7.6% stake in Robinhood, which is just wild. And then just days later, FTX US announced that it was starting to roll out stock trading within the FTX app. That's right, stock trading within the FTX app. So now the place that you go to buy crypto like Ethereum, Bitcoin, and Solana is the same place that you can go to buy stocks like Apple, Tesla, Coin, Snap, which might be a risky play right now, but got absolutely crushed this week, all in one place. It just adds another point to my theory that FTX is going to eat all of finance and all of the financial markets. They do everything. They started out as a trading platform for professional traders, and then they brought those tools to the masses with the FTX app, the place that people like you and I can go to buy crypto, NFTs, and now stocks. The FTX app is cheaper than any other crypto exchange. There's no fixed minimum fee on transactions, no ACH fees, and no withdrawal fees. And you can even set up recurring buys directly from your bank account for a dollar cost averaging strategy, which sounds pretty good right about now. But 
Instead of listening to me talk about it, you can just go try it for yourself. Go to your app store of choice, download the FTX app, and when you sign up, enter my code, not boring, all one word. And when you trade $10 worth of crypto, you get a free coin. You can do that or just click the link in the show notes below. Stop. Click the link in the show notes below. Sign up. My code will automatically be entered. It's the best way to say thank you to FTX US for sponsoring Not Boring Founders and conversations like this one with Amjad Massad, the CEO and co-founder of Replit. Amjad, thanks for coming on Not Boring Founders. It's great to have you here. I'm excited to be here. Really looking forward to it. So I think I kind of know the answer to my opening question because I wrote a piece uh, on Replit around your Series B, but what does the world look like in a decade if Replit is wildly successful? I, I think the most exciting aspect of that world is that we'll see software decentralized. You know, Peter Thiel coined this thing and he called it the, I think the paradox of the internet. The internet was supposed to be the great equalizer, but all the wealth was centralized in a couple of ge geographic locations, in a couple of sort of homogeneous areas, homogeneous thought. There's a lot of problem because of, because of how centralized tech and software are. There was this graphic that was making the rounds on Twitter the other day where it was, I think they looked at political donations per tech company and Netflix was 99.7%. So 99.7%, right? So I was like, okay, what is the political diversity in North Korea? And you look at North Korea and the ruling party gets 87% of the votes, right? And this is the most draconian place on earth. It's so unnaturally homogeneous in, in thought, in, in style. There's a flattening of the world and culture that happens because the same kind of people sort of rule the internet and they rule with an iron fist. It's sort of... The way they do things like moderation and things like that, for example, since it's a hot topic, let's talk about that. If, if you look at the internet sort of like you look at sort of the real world, the way these companies are running the internet, they run them like truly authoritarian regimes. If you're sort of in Stalinist Russia and Soviet Russia and like you say something that get the ruling party mad at you, they'll disappear you, right? And it's similar way on the internet today, if you say something that's considered outside of the elite perception of what's the Overton window is, you sort of immediately disappeared. You wrote about the great online game and that, that was my intro to not boring, right? The way I looked at it, it was like, yes, like you, like this thing that, you know, we call the internet, we call online and you just sort of, you know, type some key, press some keys and it opens doors and makes you a lot of money and, and gives you your livelihood and gives you friends and does all these things. It's real life. Like we can't disconnect it now from, from real life. So the moderation issue, which is a hot topic now, is just one of these things. Another thing is like design, product experiences. It's very, very much lacking of diversity. Like human diversity is wild. Before, before the modern world, there was Every culture had its own attire. Every culture had its own ways of doing things, ways of eating, ways of thinking. And the tragedy of the modern world is that we're sort of disconnected from that diversity. Like we're all, we're all sort of becoming this like Star Trek sort of 
thing where you're all wearing the same uniform and uh, we're all behaving in the same way. And a, a big part of it was the centralizing of tech, I think, has, has that, that effect. So there are a lot of great things about the internet, connecting people, having empathy towards other cultures, feeling the plight of other cultures, helping other people, working with other people all over the world. When one place is responsible for making all the software, making all the decisions around all the software, I think it's not, it's not an optimal uh, place to be in. And there's nothing inherent about the internet or software that makes it so that it, it, it actually is this way. So you think, okay, why has that happened? And, you know, it's, it's it, at least our answer to it, it might be a little simplistic, but the tools are actually like not very easy to start with. They're not very friendly. The barrier to entry to making software is still very high. Consider the fact that you need to buy a, you know, buy a laptop to make software. Most people in the world have phones. Why can't you make software on your phone, right? Why can't you like, let's say the Apple is an extreme example, but you buy an iPhone, you buy a thousand dollar phone. Let's say you want to program it. You want to use it in, in a general way, like general computing, as opposed to a consumer, you want to be a creator on it. You have to buy another $3,000 machine. And then you have to go pay Apple $99 for the developer license, right? And then you have to pay like $2 for the, the storage on top of it. Just like that kills me every time I get that little notification after spending all of that money on, on the yes. hardware. Is there a, instead of a like one thing, one way is not good and one way is good. It, it, it almost sounds to me like that was a necessary step, maybe not full homogenization. All the things that were developed in Silicon Valley, we're talking about the iPhone, Google's Android, all of these things now maybe make it possible to build the internet in a more decentralized way. Do you think that's true or do you think it could have been done differently this whole time? I think it could have been done differently. One thing that's really hard about thinking about how to value certain things is running the counterfactual, right? So, so what could have been true about the world if Apple did not take the, the decisions that they've taken around how to, how to make software, how to program their machines, right? What if there was a more open platform for, for creators? What if, what if they haven't treated end users as dumb consumers, right? What if they make it like more open for people to, to program it? And, and I think that that was totally possible. Actually, HyperCard was something that was built at Apple. And HyperCard was this idea that it's like end user computing idea, right? People should be able to build their own software. You can make fun stuff with it. You can link stuff. HyperCard could, could have actually been the basis of the internet in a lot of ways. Could have been Replit in a lot of ways. But, you know, I don't know what happened. I, we're actually talking to Bill Atkinson later. He's coming to give a talk at Replit. So if, if you have a reason to come to work at Replit, it's like because we have a lot of awesome speakers that come. But uh, he's coming to talk uh, at Replit, so I'll ask him these questions. But it, th th there are a lot of potential branches in, in these big companies where they could have made the internet more open. They could have treated software not as something that the priesthood does, you know, and it's, it's something that, that everyone at least has access to. Like, we're not saying that everyone needs to program, but it needs to be easy. Like, when I buy a very expensive machine, I need to be able to program it. Replit is, is like, you know, going back to the early computing era with, say, Commodore 64 when you bought the machine, you boot it up, it opened to a basic prompt, right? And the basic prompt invited you to program the machine. And it didn't create this sort of class separation between creator and consumer. 
you, you can use other people's programs or you can write your own programs or you can remix other people's programs or you can connect them with each other. Unix had the same idea as well. But, but then we went into this world where like, all right, we need to make computers more accessible. And, and here's all the ways in which like we can make them more accessible. But then it went too far and it became locked down. And I think that's like a, that's a branch of a potential world that is like less ideal on that axis, at least. Back to your question about what the world looks like if, if Replit is successful. And I think we'll see a lot more decentralization of software. I think people will be able to make software from their phones. I think there's going to be a lot more people making software. There's going to be a lot more collaboration around software. We're going to see kids making money really early on. I mean, there are people in the Replit community now that are like 13 years old that are making like, you know, 10, 15 bucks a day, just like making games. Uh, and, and we're going to see a lot more of that. The, the places in the world where th there are people who learn to code on Replit, say in India, and the, the first month they got their check, they made more than their entire family made in a year, right? So I think that'll have a, an enormous effect uh, on lifting people out of poverty. It'll actually improve people's lives in, in a real measurable way. And uh, I would say like computers will be more fun and exciting to use. There's going to be a lot more diversity in terms of apps. There, there's going to be like a lot more sort of access to the tools and the data and, and, and the things that run the software. So you'll be able to peer behind the software. From a developer perspective, I think we're going to go into a more real-time world. So, so Git and GitHub is, is a sort of really interesting thing. It's like a Git is a network of code and people. And that's fascinating, right? But it is, it is email-based, essentially. It is transactional. Uh, it is slow. It is not real-time. So Replit or whatever things and standards we, we build, it's going to be more real-time and it's going to be more compositional. And we, and we talked a lot about this in the Not Boring article, but we want to build these primitives that allow people to connect software in a really easy way. And, and sort of the final piece uh, is relates to Bitcoin, Web3, the, the payment revolution that's happening on the web. Value is getting introduced into, into the internet. The biggest flaw of, perhaps the biggest flaw of the initial design of the internet, which is something to behold, it's amazing. Like the internet, yeah. the fact that it works, the fact that it's decentralized, it's amazing. But it, it, it was missing a dimension. Right. And it causes a lot of problems that actually people don't think about. It was missing a time dimension almost. Right. So like you can think about money as, as time. Part of the reason why there's like so much spam and there's so much attacks and the Internet is so wild and, and crazy and it's really dangerous out there. Maybe we could talk about some of the things that we had to fight along the way at Replit and in terms of abuse and things like that. I think part of the reason, and I t tweeted this the other day, it was like, the best thing about the internet, it was like free and open. Even kids can learn, participate, and do anything, people without income. The worst thing about the internet is that it's free and open, and anyone can do anything, including like, you know, including attack, DDoS, spam, and, and all, the, all the negative things. And I think one part of the answer to that is introducing some sort of native payment system, native value exchange system, while also not pricing people out and, and figuring out a way that you can either earn, like work to earn, or, or if you're already rich, you can, you know, have, say, have a wallet and be able to browse the internet and 
there's an exchange of value that's happening that's very native and easy and yeah. doesn't feel like it gets into into your way. We're not inundated with ads. We're not inundated with captchas. And so Thank what is God? Captcha? <laughs> so captcha captcha essentially is making you do work, making you do and actually Google monetizes your work, right? I know. Captcha's making you do work because there's not a native way to say, "Oh yeah, here's a few satoshis," you know, <laughs> instead of me actually clicking on things. It's and it's getting harder and harder and harder. And I, I wrote about scale last year, and so like was just kind of like reminded of the fact that there are people that they work with who are labeling a bunch of kind of images and videos and all of that who they're paying to do it. And then each time I see it harder and harder and harder caption, I'm like, damn, I'm doing this for free for them as as I'm trying yeah. to just use the internet in a peaceful way. It does seem like there's this weird arms race going on where more sites now have either a captcha or that like stupid puzzle slider that I have to end up doing because they're just getting attacked more and more and more. It's like the internet does feel like it's becoming just this more hostile place, both humans versus each other and bots versus humans and bots versus bots. It's, it's crazy out there. I don't think we know the scale of bots, honestly. Like, you know, one of the big criticisms of Twitter is that actually maybe if they uh, crack down on the bot problem, they'll active active user number will go from like, you know, 250 million to like 100 million or something yeah. like that. I was talking to a friend who does video ads and he, like at least 50% of, of video ads is fraud. And streaming, there are farms now where people like to just stream music, like so artists and uh, can pay them to like go stream their music. There's farming and botting and all these, all these things are actually underrated in how destructive they are to, to civilization. I hate using this example as a positive thing, but do you remember when they went after just a few people who downloaded songs on Napster, like really, 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 really hard to set an example. Yeah. And it just kind of killed Napster. Obviously, you don't want the government doing that, but like, is there a way to just deeply penalize a few people? It just feels like it's out of control or or what's like the replit answer to this? Is it just putting well, I, the tools in everybody's hands to fight back? The, the internet is missing a dimension, right? In, in the real world, the reason I can't go to your home and knock on every door and call you and terrorize you and, and all that, not just because there's law, but there's actually a lot of work for me to do. Yeah. Like you need to actually physically go there. That's time and work. I'm only one person. Let's say I want to run a denial of service attack on your restaurant. I need to go pay a hundred people and, and come to your restaurant and like act crazy and, and do something. So the real world has this dimension that is time. You could call it time, work, whatever it is, right? The internet is so frictionless that it doesn't have that. I think one way to add that back is the native payments, native value exchange in the internet. So like, let's say Bitcoin, Lightning, whatever, it's like so integrated in the internet. You can like, okay, you suspect this user is a bot, like ask him for a couple of Satoshis or, or something like that instead of a captcha, right? Maybe that's too low, but, but it looks some amount of money and, and you can like program your browser to say like, I'm not going to spend, you know, more than that. Maybe there's some standard around verification. Elon is talking a lot about this with regards to Twitter is like verify all the humans. Yeah. It's actually fairly uh, easy to do that if you ask people to like pay a little, a little amount of money to get verification. I think Web3 is going to solve this probably because it's such an important thing for kind of civil resistance that whether it's WorldCoin or Proof of Humanity or something else, like, I think there will be that primitive that, that yes. platforms building in the future will have access to. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and so native value 
exchange, adding time as a dimension to the internet is going to unlock a lot of different things. One thing we think about Replit is, what does it look to compose software and easily be able to distribute value and money? Like say, okay, so uh, say I build, build an app. This app composes different libraries, different services. Let's say I, I build an app, a to-do app. It uh, hooks into an email service, hooks into an SMS service. And so when, it, when a user pays me a dollar, like on the back end, it like immediately gets distributed to the other services that I'm using and to the libraries, to the open source libraries. If there was really easy primitives for hooking into different functions and those functions can actually ask for payment, then it will fix a lot of things and, and software actually become more delightful. I'm a big fan of open source. I mean, I owe a big part of my career to open source. And we spend hundreds of thousands in donations on open source at Replit. And we, we maintain a, a bunch. We upstream a lot of the things that have changed. So we're big fans of open source. But here's the deal. Like open source actually locks out a lot of people from participating because yep. the people that can participate in open source today are the people who are already well off because you know, it's very hard to monetize your open source contribution. And if you're working for a living, you won't have time to do that. It, it falls into the same problem that we talked about in centralizing tech. Open source is primarily centralized. Like if you look at Linux, like the people that are contributed to Linux work at, you know, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, obviously they're going to make decisions that are very Western centric, right? So why can't more people in India or in Jordan contribute to that? And, and part of the reason is like a lot of these people are actually just trying to get by and survive. They don't have a lot of free time. So if you, if you don't really get paid for open source, open source becomes something that's sponsored by the biggest corporations to, to kind of co-work on it or the people that are already well off that can work on it. But in a world where, where there's like native value exchange, I think more and more people will be able to contribute to, to open source. I don't know why I'm picturing like a watch, but there's these ever finer pieces of the internet that there's, if you can stream money right to them, where like yeah. it incentivizes people to get those little tiny pieces more and more and more right, knowing that they'll be paid for their contribution to the overall whole. That's like a really good model of, of thinking about it. Your worldview is very clearly informed by the fact that you grew up in Jordan, you came to work on building software on the West Coast, and now you're building tools to open it up. So it does kind of feel like almost a parallel of this journey that we've been going on. Can you give the two-minute overview of, of your background? Because I think that's really important to inform the rest. Sure, yeah. I come from multiple generations of refugees and immigrants. My mom's side of the family came from North Africa. They're part of the native tribes of North Africa and Africa in general. There's, a, there's an ethnic group called Amazigh or Berber, some people call them. And you can see them, you know, in North Africa, Central Africa, different places, you know, Morocco, Algeria, Libya, even. They have a long lineage of struggle. At first, the Arabs and Muslims sort of colonized them, and then later on, the French, and then they fought a lot of these different wars. My mom's side of the family, they escaped, I think, the, the French-Algerian war. We don't know a lot about them, but that's you know, some of what we know. And they went to Syria and then some of them went to Jordan and my mom was born in Jordan. My father comes from Palestine, also Fred, the 1948 war, went to Syria. He was born in Syria and then moved to Jordan because his, his dad died and 
they, they were looking for more opportunities and things like that. And so my mom and dad met, met in Jordan. Jordan was, is still fairly stable. And the best thing about it is it's, you know, well run, relatively well run to its neighbors. It's an island of stability in a, in a sort of sea of chaos. We got a really good education. My father is super hardworking. He started out really in poverty, but, but he, he was an engineer in the government and, and rose in the ranks all the way from just a, like an engineer to becoming the city manager. I was in the U.S. by the time he kind of, you know, became the apex there. But it was really hard because as a Palestinian in Jordan, like a lot of the government jobs de facto go to the native population. So he, he was able to overcome a lot. And so it was really inspiring to watch him do that. He was really interested in technology. He got us a computer fairly early on. And I learned to program. It just, it just clicked for me. It's just like, I just understood how the computer thought almost like I can model like, like just naturally when you like the first time you saw one or like is it yeah. something in your brain yeah so I remember my father getting it him and his friend who supposedly knew more about it they, they had these big manuals they were sitting down it was like one of my earliest vivid memories and I was in that room looking at them and they were like one finger typing on the keyboard it was like oh cd and dir you know mkdir you know things like that like dos commands and I would watch them and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like you could like talk to this thing and it like it does what you want. Yeah. And so initially when he left the computer, I would go start the computer and I would do the same commands and I understood it. And at some point he caught me doing that and he was so, so impressed by the fact that I like knew how to run this machine. And, and so they, yeah, they, they let me just mess with it. And that's such a huge turning point, right? Cause it could be like, we just bought this expensive machine. I can't believe you're playing with it. You're in trouble or like, all right, we're going to lean into this. That was huge. I mean, these, uh, there are turning points in people's lives and we'll, we'll get to education. But one of the things I care about education is because that was one turning point. Another turning point was at school, they got also computers and there was like a, the computer teacher noticed that I had a gift for math and, and, and computers and he would pull me out of math classes and he would teach me, you know, when, when I was uh, first or second grade, he would teach me like, you know, fourth or fifth grade, like algebra and things like that. So I was like two or three years ahead. And, and then they got a uh, logo logos as this like MIT um, media lab, I think invented a thing. Now it's scratch. I mean, those guys keep, keep inventing really cool things for kids. And Logo was my first sort of like, okay, I can build something. And I started making games with it and started making it do, do interesting things. And so that, that went on for a year or two, but then he left or got fired. I'm not entirely sure. That left me in those math classes and uh, physics and things like that, that I, that I was so far ahead. And so I, was, I became sort of a troublemaker. I was, already had that in me. <laughs> and uh, you know, I like to make people laugh and, and make fun of authority and, and things like that. It went down a destructive path at some point where I was like, you know, I, I was just like, I didn't care about school at all. And, but I, I, I continued programming and I built my first like, software business when I was, I started when I was 12. I was playing Counter-Strike and I saw that there's this like LAN, LAN gaming stores. I don't know if you had them in the US, but you would go there physically and you would sit down and play Counter-Strike with other people in that, in that store. 
I was like, you're running the entire thing on like pen and paper and you have all the staff, like you can fire half of them. I can make you software <laughs> to do that. I was 12. Just a ruthless businessman from 12 years yeah. old. <laughs> so, so, I was, so I was like, yeah, all right, if you can make it, like we'll, we'll buy it. And then I, it took me three years to make it. <laughs> Started when I was like 12, 13 and like literally I like didn't do anything else two, three years. And then I, I, I got something working. I learned a lot during that. I didn't know what a database was. And I still I ready to buy it, it three years later or were they like, wait, they, they did you buy actually, it. Yeah. That's awesome. They did buy it. Surprisingly, there was some competitors, but you know, I used to cut them on price. I just, I didn't care. It, it was already too. And I did this thing where I gave them service as well. I give them, I can like maintain it, maintain the games, maintain the entire like suite of computers. Cause, cause I learned how to do like IT stuff as well. I learned how to like, you know, format and install windows and things like that on, on a lot of different machines from a central place. And I ran this as a business, as, as both a software business and, a, and an IT business. And I would like run away from school. So I bought a pager to page me when something's wrong. So they would page me. I would like literally jump from the window in school to go like maintain computers. How tall were you at this point? I'm just trying to like put an image in my head of you with a little pager running out the window. And yeah, running. yeah. You know, I, I wasn't that tall. So I had, so one interesting thing about me is like, I am like a ginger. So I had like red hair, which is like very, very different from other kids in, uh, in Jordan because most people, even my brothers are like, you know, dark, darker hair, darker uh, skin, things like that. And so, I kind of stood out like wherever, wherever I went. And uh, I, th I think, you know, 15, I had like pretty good growth spurt. I was like one of the tallest in, in, in class and things like that. So I wasn't, so I had the pager and I had it on my belt, you know, and I was like, you know, walking around trying to impress girls with it. And they did impress girls. The, love the pagers. Girls. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. I was bawling, man. When I made my first money, I took the entire class to McDonald's, which had just opened in Jordan. And incredible. it was so fun. Yeah. So you, you yeah. bought this McDonald's food or you're firing people left and right. And there's people going home <laughs> to their families and crying because they've been fired from the game cafe. What do you do next? Yeah, typically, my, my goal was not to fire people. <laughs> my goal was to make something useful to run a business more efficiently and, and better. And I built a lot of accounting software for them as well to know what they've done that day and, you know, and project forward and things like that. After that, I was actually... You know, I, I went into into a bit of a, you know, looking back on it, maybe like a depressive sort of cycle because I really wanted to leave Jordan. I wanted to explore other places. One of the things that my father did that was great and also not so great at the same time was that he really stretched himself and in some cases took a lot of debt in order to get us into, into a great school. Public schools in Jordan are like prisons. Like you literally like... Like people are armed in those places. Wow. I think some places in the U.S. is sort of the same. And so they got us into this private school. A lot of our friends were really, really well off. And so when when it came time to go to university, all my friends were going to to the U.K. and to the United States, to Canada. And I wanted to do the same. I mean, you know, my, my grades were good and I wanted to go to like a good place to study computer science. But I couldn't because we couldn't pay for it. And that really bummed me out. And it was like a lost period of my life where I didn't do anything and was not excited about anything. I guess I played a lot of games through that period. How long was the, that period? <clears throat> like, let's say I stopped doing the, the gaming stuff, 16, 17, couldn't go abroad for school at like uh, 18. And so like between 18 and 20, 
was like nothingness. I got into school in Jordan and I was pretty unhappy about that. And, and another thing, it was my father was really excited about doing computer engineering instead of computer science. And I sort of went along with that because it, he was like the association for engineers in Jordan do not accept computer science. You have to be an engineer. And yeah. so it was, it was still at a time where, where, you know, software is not like this, this thing that was eating the world. And so like I, I went along with that as well. I also had this theory because I got so good at software so early on. I had this theory that AI will be able to write software on its own. Surprisingly, like I'm working on that now, but yeah. uh, but but I had it I had this idea early on that you'd be able to like click some wizards and generate software, and and I was like, okay, if AI will write the software, someone needs to build the computers still. So maybe I should learn how to make computers. <laughs> and <laughs> and what year was what year was this that you thought that we'd have AI imminently? That would have been 2003, something, 2004. 18 years later, we're not quite, quite there yet. We're not quite there yet. We're getting pretty close, but you know, it will always have a big part of a human agency. I'd rapidly describe it as a human machine symbiosis. Like it's not like a competitive thing, but programmers will always be valuable. But a big part of making software accessible, you know, I'd rapidly say our mission to reach a billion software creators, I think a big part of that will include AI-assisted coding at minimum. I asked this question uh, on Twitter. It's like, hey, AI researchers, do you think that large language models are as big of a step in machine learning or AI as deep learning was? And a lot of people was like, nah, nah, I don't think so. But it increasingly looks like it. Like the entire AI ML world is sort of coalescing around large language models but it's going to take a lot of engineering because the large language models are sort of like this generative like wild thing you know and it it, it understands language but it also it's generative it's creative right uh, and and so a lot of the applications are actually layering it in uh, other models so for us we're actually building this thing called find errors so you highlight a piece of code you ask the model to find errors and the way we use the language model is like we ask it at every token whether it was like surprised to see that token. And if it is surprised, it is an error. So it, you can think about an er errors as uh, anomalies, right? Actually, a lot of fraud detection is like that. Fraud yeah. is anomaly detection. Like if you work at Stripe, you're doing anomaly detection to, to detect Stripe. Errors are anomalies in a lot of ways, right? So it really approximates logic errors and, and syntax errors very well, but also it's very noisy. So we built another model on top of that to to reduce the noise that, that's coming out of that. So we trained the model on top of that based of user feedback. So when a user says, actually, you're tripping, you know, <laughs> that's like, no, that's not an I error. I got it right. You're wrong. Yeah. Then we trained that model so that it tempers the the LLM. There's a lot of projects that 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 use multiple language models that are fine-tuned in different ways. I think something we're we think uh, a lot about is like you know you could also do reinforcement learning on top of language models, and so th there's a lot of engineering that goes into deploying these things. The breakthrough has happened, but now the name of the game is engineering, right? And and the, the breakthroughs will continue to happen. The language models will continue to scale, but now it's time for builders to to build on top of these things. I I think we're going to build a lot of tools that make programming more accessible, more learnable, and large language models will be a big part. All right, so something happened 
the AI, I mean, it took a lot longer for the AI to take the jobs. And maybe that happens in the next few years or not. But somewhere between kind of this darkish period between 18 and 20 and where we are now, you did a whole hell of a lot. And it seems like I'm looking at you right now, the room is bright. You look happy. Like yeah. what happened after you came out of that, that period? Yeah, I got really interested in programming languages. The, the passion was fired up again. I don't know exactly what was the proximate cause, but I remember I got into I got into like reading Paul Graham's blog. I started reading Hacker News more, and there's this whole community around like what makes programming more than just engineering. What makes it more like art? and more something like to be understood at a fundamental level as opposed to just a tool, which is how I've been approaching it. And it really resonated with me. Paul wrote about how some startups, their choice of language will make them differentiate it differently and make the best hackers want to work there. And that's been proven out over time. He wrote about just what makes programming languages more powerful than others. And I started realizing that there's a world here that I haven't been thinking about. Part of the mistaken idea that AI was was going to automate software right off the bat, was, I didn't understand the creativity. Although I was doing it, I really didn't understand the creativity necessary to to do that kind of programming, to build to build interesting things. And now you won't even call them like you won't even call people who create software coders or programmers or, or engineers, right? Like you call them software creators. So this was a very explicit choice of words because I, I I think that people will make software without any code. The obvious thing is the no code th movement that's happening, which is valuable and, and good. But I think that the large language model movement, AI, GPT-3, that, that sort of thing will change programming in a fundamental way. I wrote a blog on the Repl blog where I talked about how this emergent AI thing could, could change programming. For one, for the first time in history, we have something that's very good at turning half-baked ideas into, into full programs. These programs are sometimes buggy. You still have to understand them. You still have to debug them. But it's going to get better and better at actually generating the code. It's, it's actually part of a secular trend since the beginning of programming. We started with machine code, zeros and ones, and and then we got punch cards, right, which was slightly higher level. And then we got lower level programming languages, like, you know, I think the one, first one, A, B, and then C. Uh, they were naming them after letters. The, the letters are still going. There's, there's a D programming language now. but I actually have never heard of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like more like, I think, data science type type things. And and then I, I, th I think the like first high level programming language was by Grace Hopper, right? She was in the in the military. And I, I think she also invented the concept of a library. She would write code and like, actually, there, there would be like libraries, there would be like punch cards that are set aside, and she would use them, she would reuse the code. And then she wrote, I think, the first compiler. And that's how higher level languages emerged. At the time, we thought of them as higher level. Now we think of C as low level. Yeah. And then you keep going higher, you get to Python and JavaScript. JavaScript was meant to be as forgiving as possible. That's why you, you miss a semicolon, it doesn't matter. That's why you program errors, like you can like, you know, hit, hit another button on the, on the website and it will try again. I'll just keep going. It's meant to be very, very forgiving. So this is this trend has been all about <clears throat> making programming accessible to more and more people. 
actually Apple had an application kind of like the web, kind of like the web browsers. It's called HyperCard. And the idea behind HyperCard is that you would program in this like English-like syntax and you would like make these cards and then connect them back and forth with each other, kind of similar to the web. And it's, it was a really fascinating system. People who bought Macs they, at the time in the 80s and 90s would use HyperCard to build like personal software. So this whole idea of like end user computing yeah. was actually taking shape. I think where where we're headed at right now is that we're we're you know there hasn't been progress in programming languages to make it, things more accessible in the last twenty years and yeah JavaScript got a little better but it got actually more complicated it became a little less accessible and I think the next big jump in making let's say making computing uh, more accessible to the general public is going to be around some AI technology, I think large language models is probably it. What I think will happen going forward is there's going to be this recursive loop between the advancement in AI and, and programming language design. So I think the language design will get influenced by the fact that machines are getting better at writing code. And so when the, will, the, when will <clears throat> the machines write the language? That's that's a super interesting question. Like, what if the next language is actually co-designed with AI? I haven't thought about it, actually. But, you know, Lisp, when they made Lisp at the MIT AI lab, so Lisp is this uh, language where, where they, you know, they say code is data, meaning that the code is structured in a, in a data structure. So you write, basically, you write arrays. And imagine if you had JavaScript but none of the syntax, only JavaScript arrays, and this was the whole thing. And you can like bootstrap a language from just a number of axioms. You don't need a lot of axioms. And, and the reason they did it that way, because they had this vision that the AI would like rewrite its own code, right? So you, you bootstrap an AI, and the AI becomes capable. It's like, oh, I know how to improve myself. And, and so because code is data, it will ingest its own code and like, you know, emit new code and you get like this recursive improvement. When was Lisp created? I, Lisp makes me like, it, it brings to mind Paul Graham and it brings to mind yes. Patrick Collison. Like when, when was yes. Lisp created? It was in the 1950s, so 1957, which is wild because at the time computers were so underpowered and the idea of creating an interpreted language, meaning a language that requires large software to run and it requires a lot of memory allocations and garbage collection for it to function is insane. I think it took a few years until, until it was functional, but it was super early on the idea of interactive programming. And they invented this concept of a REPL, which, you know, which is part of REPL's name and lineage. And the idea is one program you could write with Lisp is the program that takes other programs to run them, right? So read, you read the program in because, you know, again, the program is data. Eval, execute that, that data. Print, print the result and loop, you know, do, do that again. And so the idea behind interactive programming came from that 50s, 60s Lisp. Is there a move, I guess, and this might actually just be like an obvious answer, but from like, only shape rotators even had like only the best shape rotators even had a shot of programming in the 1950s 
and we're moving more and more and more to, towards word cells. And there's going to be a point if the AI yeah. gets so good that like, I'm going to be a better programmer than you know a normal programmer today because like I'm good at words. And so I just need to say that the right prompts, is that the one way to think about the arc is that you need to yes. be like incredibly technical and now you don't as much. It's actually interesting because the early computer industry did not make a difference between the end user and the programmer. That chasm actually started with the Mac in the 80s. So 84, 85, when the Mac popularized desktop style, like, you know, windows, uh, icons, pull down menus, isomorphic design. I I tweeted something the other day, which is like the black pill on Steve Jobs is he created these amazing devices, but saddled us with this concept of skeuomorphism. And what that did is it abstracted away the underlying workings of the machine So people did not have to learn the machine anymore because there are now analogies for how to run the machine. That means you don't have to learn it at a fundamental level. And uh, and, and wait, wait, actually, we we've already gone like way off track, which is great. And so I'm going to go even further off track here. You've gotten so based recently. I'm sure you've always like thought that way. I've loved your recent tweets. Like what what's been behind just like going for it on Twitter recently? I have these phases. I've always been kind of outspoken on Twitter. Like I think going going back to 2016, 17, 18. But I, I do have phases where I'm like, I'm not tweeting much or I'm like, maybe I should act what a, what a, what a, like a traditional business person should act or something like that. I believe there's a lot of alpha left in being authentic online. Yeah. And I think it will the right people to you and it will repel the wrong people which is great. That's what you want. Like I want people who are attracted to the things that I'm talking about, to my worldview, to be able to reach out. And that's how I make friends mostly on the internet. And then it becomes real life friends because we we're interested in the same things. Even if we don't think exactly alike, we at least are open-minded. And and I honestly like don't want to be friends with closed-minded people, people who shut down debate people who are, you know, who are politically correct, people who are posers, people who, who really are NPCs where they, you know, they really don't think about anything. They just follow the mainstream view of, of anything. I think we're, we're entering a, a period where you'd want to really, you know, make allies and make friends by signaling your nonconformity. And it's, it's worked great. Again, that's, that's how I meet most of my friends. If, if people are offended by what I say, you know, they can send it to my employer. I'll have someone take a look at it. <laughs> so two things here. One, NPC is, I think, like the worst insult you could probably give somebody. These days. It's a non-player character. It means that you're just like really just kind of following along and, and like getting played by somebody else as opposed to making your own choices and thinking for yourself. I can't imagine a worse thing to be called. The second part that you bring up there, though, is like, all right, talk to my employer. Where do you draw the line between making friends and like what's good for the company, right? Like, are there yeah. people, do you not want people at Replit who, who disagree oh, no. also? Oh, no. Or like, how do you how do you get that balance? Yeah, so Replit, we talk a lot about being a demilitarized zone. We don't want part of the culture war. We don't want to make political alignment with our beliefs to be necessary condition to working at Replit when, you know, Hai and I are Palestinians. We started the company. Some of our first customers were Israelis. 
that shows you the commitment to neutrality and the commitment to the idea that everyone would benefit from programming. I want really everyone in the world to learn how to code. I think the world would be a better place if more and more people engaged in this activity, if more and more people were more creative, and if, if more people were more cre- creators rather than, than consumers. I, I think it it's really comes down to being authentic. And so I'm like the same, whether publicly or in private or with friends or at the company. Inside the company, inside Slack, there's a certain decorum and that there's certain etiquettes. And, and again, we don't import cultural wars. We don't engage in toxic debates. Different places have different traditions. I think people should be authentic, but at the same time, I think people should respect the place that they're being part of. And that's a real place or a virtual space. Work is about work. Work is about advancing the mission of the company. It's about growing the company. And it's about producing products and services for other people. And I think companies should be fundamentally neutral. Silicon Valley has sort of started this very destructive idea that you can't compel your company into doing activism on your behalf. And I think that's fundamentally wrong and immoral, unethical, because companies are entities in the economy that have very specific purpose. And once you make everything your purpose, you're basically nothing to no one. Or if you use your power to subvert the will of the people, I think, in a democratic society, I think that that's also bad. I think companies have certain missions and have certain focuses. And uh, and obviously, they have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders to maximize shareholder value. And they have duty to their customers to serve them. And they should do whatever in their capacity to advance these goals. And and that's it. Amen. I mean, one of the the last point we're going to make on on your Twitter here is a definition because uh, one of the funniest things to me is that you're anti the laptop class, but you're creating a generation of millions of people and billions of people who are going to work from their laptops. So, what is the laptop class? Yeah. So, the laptop class was recently coined by by Mark Andreessen. By the way, I'm not anti anyone. I'm I know. mostly moderate, mostly sort of issue dependent. The laptop class is, I think, coined by Mark Andreessen. It's a sort of a play on the, you know, what people call the PMC or the professional managerial class. It, it's the idea that there's a whole class of people that have been born and totally sheltered from the realities of physical work, of, uh, hardship and they, they go through life as if everything is taken for granted and then they interact with the world in a fundamentally virtual manner so they don't have a complete picture of the world because they haven't uh, been really confronted with with how real shit could get and I, actually i think I, I don't think you know with the replit user base that's always the case we have users from all over the world we have users in, in places of, of conflict, you know, like Gaza and, and places like that. We have obviously affluent users as well. But, you know, we have users who are in South Africa who only have a mobile device. And that, that mobile device is their mom's device that the whole family kind of uses to, to learn. And they're learning programming. I don't think that what we're doing at Replit is fundamentally a sort of laptop class thing. I think it's it's quite the opposite. It's about decentralizing 
the means of software creation to more and more people around the world. And actually, I think that when that happens, the decadent aspects of the laptop class, meaning the thinking that the life revolves around them, the idea that you can control people and speech online, they'll actually have to reconsider it because now they're going to have competition all over the world of people who are equally competent, but are not delusional. The, the distinction is really, are you creating something or are you just paper pushing? And that's another way of thinking about it. And so the, yeah. the way of actually thinking about Replit is that you're creating, you know, millions and millions and millions of people who are not just like working, doing something that a robot could do, but they're actually getting out there and creating and building something new and, and taking all the risk that comes with doing that. Yeah, I think entrepreneurship is fundamentally a a real thing because you're exposing yourself to financial ruin, you're exposing yourself to embarrassment, you're taking a step outside of the paths that were created for you. And and I think e even if you're part of the laptop class, I think I think a lot of people who who are part of the laptop class, once they take an entrepreneurial move, they tend to change and they tend to be more open-minded. I've seen a lot of people who went through, through their whole life without being challenged or exposed to ideas that they don't like or to the realities of the world. And then once they leave the you know Ivy League fang track and they go into startups and things like that, you could see that their personality and they, they're sort of they're experiencing fundamental growth because now the realities of the market is is at play. And as we are seeing right now, it's unforgiving. No one cares if you are a Stanford PhD drop-off that worked at Google for five years and now you want to raise $100 million in this market. No one gives a shit. Ultimately, what matters is traction. What matters is competence. And so at some point you're faced with reality and and reality keeps you honest. The way we think about the Replit creator ecosystem is a form of entrepreneurship. And you see a lot of, especially the kids and the younger developers engaged in it are definitely taking, like thinking about it as a way to like make money, to be entrepreneurial, to build something impactful. And so I, I really do think creation could be that. And it, it's not mutually exclusive from being an ethical, upstanding individual who understands the realities of the world. All right. So I'm going to take us back on track now. So you fell in love with kind of the beauty of all of these different programming languages. You try to teach yourself as many languages as possible and then write them like from there to Replit's founding in like two minutes. What happened? I, I got into all these programming languages. I wanted to learn as much as possible about how different languages do different things. I was taking different classes at, at school. And I ran into this fundamental problem, which I didn't have a laptop. And talking about the laptop class, I wasn't part of them yet. So I didn't have a laptop. It was too expensive at the time, above our means. And I had a computer at work, so I was working. I had a computer at home. And there were plenty of computer in the, computers in the computer lab at school. But every time I want to like do homework, I want to do a Java home, I have to install NetBeans, which is like 1.5 gigabytes you know, software. And I'd write my homework and say, I want to share it with a friend. I'd like copy paste it into my email, send it on email, and then they copy paste it back into the IDE. Turns out I'm using a library of a Java version that they do not have, and the program doesn't run. And I was like, this is awful. 
you know, in Arabic, we have the saying that the shoemaker walks around barefoot. And the idea is that a lot of professionals tend to forget to apply their profession to their own profession. <laughs> Programmers build all these wonderful things for everyone, but the act of programming itself remains archaic. And so I started searching online. I was like, oh, you know, I'm sure there's like a code editor in the browser. And in 2008, seven, eight, there wasn't, there really wasn't. There was some experiments here and there, prototypes, but there wasn't anything that you can like run Java on or Python. And, and I was like, what? That's crazy. Like, you know, like the efficient market hypothesis, right? It's like, you know, if it's, if it's useful, uh, someone would have already created it. It turns out at the time it wasn't very efficient, I guess, but totally. I, I mean, I think we've just learned again that the efficient market hypothesis is bullshit. Yeah, yeah, it's more like a silly market hypothesis. And so I was like, you know, how hard could it be? Let me let me spin something up. The initial prototype was literally uh, writing JavaScript, which the browser can run. So I put a text box, I put a button. It was like put in some JavaScript, and then you click the button, it does eval to the JavaScript, and it alerts it. And I started using that. And even when I'm solving Java homework, I would like write it in JavaScript esque way and just to prototype it. And I sent this like playground to a few of my friends. Everyone liked it. People started sharing programs. I got a MVP pretty quickly. I'm like, all right, I want to add more languages. Let me write a Python interpreter in JavaScript. So I, I went and tried to do that. I was like, oh, Python is too big. Okay, let me write a scheme interpreter in, in JavaScript. So I write a small like S expression evaluator in JavaScript, added that. Me and my friends were learning a little bit of a list. And they started using it and I started using it and I loved it. I was like, all right, let's, let's, uh, let's actually go build Python, Ruby and whatever. So started building the framework for it or the system where, okay, you have multiple languages, language backends, and you have the front end, the console and the REPL and the evaluator. So I built that. And then I asked some of my friends at, in college, like, let's go build interpreters. And that was like really, really naive. I, it took me like six months to really give up on the idea of writing a Python interpreter in JavaScript. Because what I realized is not only it will take me a year to, to get to anything that's working, it will be a constant Sisyphean task of porting any updates to the C Python interpreter back to JavaScript. And so I sort of gave up and I was like, oh man, like I spent all this time trying to do this and it sucks and it's limited and, and whatnot. And so, you know, tabled the project, maybe that's like, 2010 or 11. And then I remember seeing a talk at like JavaScript Conf where someone from Mozilla research team was prototyping this idea of being able to compile different languages into JavaScript. And so the, the way it worked is there's this compiler framework from Apple called LLVM. And LLVM has something called intermediate representation. So IR is, an, is a language that's cross-platform. So you can compile a program, like say the Python interpreter into the IR, and then you can cross-compile it to different architectures. And so this researcher found that you can actually translate that intermediate representation to JavaScript in an almost one-to-one -one fashion. You create this large array and that's the heap and, and you kind of emulate some things about Unix or, or POSIX and and you get you get a python interpreter in javascript i was like this is the future and so i i went and started hacking on it found it's very limited 
we started contributing to it. We actually wrote the first uh, file system for what became Mscripten, later became Wasm. And we became the first production application to build on this technology called Mscripten. And so we compiled Python, Ruby. Ruby was really tough to compile because it was using jumps and in C and in JavaScript, there's no jumps. And so we did this hack where we tr try catch. So we try an entire code block and where it, where it says jump, we, we throw an error. And then where the catch lands is where the jump is. And I promised myself I wasn't going to interrupt you again in, in the middle of the story, but I am, yeah. which is like, what's the balance for you between like the theory and just like getting your hands dirty? Because it feels like you need to have a pretty deep like theory or academic underpinning on a lot of this, even like think about doing a lot of what you're doing, but there's also just like hacking around. So like, how do you think about like what kind of base you need versus just like diving yeah. in and, and doing it? <laughs> So I, I think, you know, I, I tweeted this, I was like, never giving up is all the competitive advantage you need. And like, really, it's this is stubbornness that I have has served me really well in life where if, if I'm faced with a problem, I just can't put it down. I just have to keep thinking about it and I'll kill myself trying to, to, to push through it. The other day I was reading a thread about Tesla, someone called it a, a vortex of competence and they were telling this story about having to move the Tesla uh, prototype to a showroom. And and she was like, well, how are you going to move it? There's no door here. And they're like, oh, we'll take down the wall. And they did it in like a few hours. And the, the idea, like the literal taking down, breaking down of a wall, that's how I think about solving problems. You're going to hit walls and like figure out how to take the freaking thing down. And sometimes it's about me going, learning the technology. Other times it's about hiring people. Other times it's a combination of these things. And like right now, like the AI stuff is, uh, I'm doing both. I'm like learning the technology and hiring people to, to help us gain that expertise. And partnering with OpenAI is, is another thing. Ultimately, it's about being goal-oriented and not shying away from the details and shying away from the, like, I, I'm, not, I'm not your traditional nerd. I, I could nerd out on things for sure. But I generally have a goal in mind. Like that's generally been the case. I want to build something. Like with AI, I want to build this. Like I want to build the self-driving IDE, you know, of the future. I want to build the Tesla of IDEs, right? So that's what what really drives me. And sometimes I'm fascinated by the technology, but most of the time there's a goal. There's something beautiful about the idea of just like loving the technology for its own sake and just like nerding out on it that way. But I do find whenever there's like a problem or a goal that I need to solve, I'm like 65 times better at getting the things that that I need to get there. And then there's instances like you mentioned where you're at the conference and like just kind of seeing and identifying the thing that you actually needed. And I see that for myself, like even if I'm if I know that I'm writing about something in a couple of weeks, like if I have that goal in mind, you just like you're you're more open to all the shit in the universe that is somewhat related to it and that could be helpful in that pursuit. Yeah, so that's very true. It's almost like priming yourself. Yeah. Like you, you prime yourself and then you go about your day to day and then you get all these hints on how to solve your problem. And you see that in the like stories about geniuses where, you know, Einstein falling in his chair and that helped him think about general relativity and gravity and things like that. There are all these stories about just people banging their head against a problem. And then in the most unlikely times, they would find a solution. I mean, one thing I really miss about coding as a teenager is that I used to dream about code. 
I used to wake up at 4 a.m. with a problem solved in my mind and go actually program it and it would it would work. I haven't had that feeling in years. And maybe because I'm not like my problems are not mostly coding problems. They're mostly strategy and some technology, but higher level technology problems. But it's a great feeling to get a sudden insight. Do you, I think we're about the same age. Do you dream anymore? Because I I've like realized recently that I'm just like not dreaming nearly as much when I sleep. Yeah, I, 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 I do dream the uh, recall rate is pretty low. And like, yeah. even when I remember what I dreamed about it, it the memory is more like a feeling rather than uh, the vividness on, uh, of it. I think definitely like when you're growing up, the dreams are way more vivid. I don't know what's yeah. that about. Maybe it's just a better, the better memory of, of youth. My memory just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse every year. And so maybe it is just that. It's the ability to, to recall and even your sleeping memory is better. I don't know, but I, I, I've done it again. All right. So <laughs> I'm taking you back. Let's just say, so, so you're, you're building this, you figure out the way, you figure out the, the answer to the problem, you're building it. Take us from there. Yeah. So we had a bunch of languages. And so we open sourced the underlying technology almost immediately. We built a JavaScript console, one of the first. We built a JavaScript-based interpreter for multiple languages. And by the way, we're open sourcing this all the time. I like didn't even think much about it. I was just like, yeah, you write code, you open source it. And, you know, I'm part of the GitHub generation, you know, the early, early crop. And and then it was time to actually build the application. And it was because we we spent so much time building the technology. Like, okay, let's now design the app where you can actually can write all this code and everything. And that's where the name Replit came from because we were thinking, okay, what do you call it? And it was like, all right, we're building REPLs. And when you need a REPL, you're like, you REPLit. <laughs> and then, so that's how, that's how the name came from. And we built, it was almost like a demo page because it didn't have user accounts. It didn't have any other features. You just selected a language and you start coding. And we put it up and posted it on Slashdot and Hacker News. Slash, Slashdot was still a thing. And, and didn't think much about it. Actually, my friends and I were going to Wadi Ram in Jordan, which was this remote uh, place in the desert, and didn't have any connections uh, connection back then. And then when we came back, I, I think I got Signal at some point there on my Nokia like Symbian phone and looked at Twitter and saw that was like Replit was going viral on, on Twitter. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. And then went back home, my email was overflowing. Peter Norvig reached out to us who worked at Google, was working at Udacity. He's like, I want to use this technology on Udacity. A bunch of learn to code sites that reached out to us. Maybe a few days later, I saw Code Academy had launched and I saw they used some of our technology. And I posted on the Hacker News thread, like, hey, this is my, my thing. And they reached out and they wanted to work, to work with me. We suddenly were this, this hot thing. And I always wanted to build a company. This was the demo thing. This was the, just the start. And that was crazy. Brendan Ike, the inventor of JavaScript, tweeted about it. And that blew my mind because we're like, we're two kids from Jordan, essentially three kids. Like my wife now, Haya, helped us with the design myself and then max my friend who in university at the time and and we're like this is nuts like this is this is way bigger than we expected i always had this long-term vision actually everything that we built today at replit i saw saw the time i i had this idea that like 
programming is going to be this more social thing that, that there's, there's going to be this network of programs and, and people that program is going to be more fun, more and more people will program. It's going to be more accessible and uh, you'll be able to do everything in the browser, including build and ship applications. So I saw the whole thing, but I didn't know that even the initial demo thing was, was going to be that compelling for people. And I guess the technology was a fundamental breakthrough. And so Max got a job offer from Google and I'm like, Hey man, look, we need to start a company. Like this, this thing could be, could be big. And it's like, I don't really see it. It's like a fun project, but like, I don't see it getting big and it really hurt, I guess, like, cause I really, I really believed in it. And he, he just didn't, wasn't that interested anymore. He's more the archetype of the nerd who's interested in the craft in itself, as opposed to the goal. So he went to work at Google because he thought there was like a lot more interesting things to do there. And now he's like an indie game developer. But Haya was, was like, yeah, I was like, she's a designer. It's like, hey, I want to do a startup. He's like, fuck yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and yeah, we started trying to start a startup, which is really hard in Jordan 2011. Almost no venture capital. I was broke. I didn't have any money. And so the Code Academy guys reached out and they're like, we want to work with you. We want you to bring, bring you in as our first engineer. I was like, I'll do some freelancing for you, but I really want to do my own startup. And then I did some freelancing and I added more languages for them and I did all this stuff. And so they really wanted to get me. So they came to Jordan. Zach, the CEO, came to Jordan and we spent uh, a bunch of time together, went to the Dead Sea, hung out, went to parties, showed him around Jordan. And he gave me an offer. I think it was like 25 basis points and like, you know, 70K <laughs> in salary. I mean, it's crazy, a lot for me. I was yeah. making, making $2,000 in Jordan. And, and then $2,000 a year, the 25 basis points didn't really, uh, I wanted to be a founder and then we kept negotiating and then towards the end of his stay on, on the way to the, to the airport, he gave me finally an offer that I actually liked and we signed the papers or I signed the offer before he boarded the plane. And so now they had to give me a visa. So we applied for an O one visa, alien of extraordinary ability. I had a bunch of news uh articles about cool, you me. should get a tattoo of that i don't know if, <laughs> like a poster oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. it's a cool thing by the way i share the status with many esteemed people including a playboy girl who <laughs> had no one visa at some point but a lot of nobel winners and, and things like that so yeah i get an oh one visa it came to jordan january 2012 and it's been it's been exactly 10 years uh, since then came to the u.s yeah. i mean and and to new york and was the founding engineer at, at code academy so Code Academy went, went pretty well. I remember I was, uh, I joined Breather uh, where I worked for in 2014. And I remember like getting very excited when I saw Code Academy make reservations. I was like, oh, I know this company. Like I've definitely tried to teach myself how to code on this thing unsuccessfully yeah, because. was friends with Zach, I think as well. Yeah, I think that's, I think yeah. that's right. Yeah. Probably the way that we got a lot of our early customers was that the founder was friends with, with Julian, but still super, super exciting. So you were there for a little bit. We're going to go to Replit. Code Academy was awesome. How'd Code you get back was awesome. to I I stopped working on Replit. I was just like really committed to Code Academy. I, I left in like late 2013, almost two years after I joined. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons people would leave, would leave a company. But I think fundamentally, I didn't want to work on an education platform. I never saw coding education as separate from building because that's not how I learn. I learned by building. And, you know, Code Academy was more set in its ways as an education platform and it's done incredibly well at that. But when that sort of 
vision crystallized, I, I, I wanted to leave. So I, I left, wanted, was sort of like a little burnt out, wanted some, some peace time, wanted to make a little bit more money. And then I found that like Facebook was working on this thing called internet.org. And what really interested me, so like, you know, the worldview that was developing for me is that, you know, computers are finally scaling and reaching everywhere in the world. The internet was reaching everywhere in the world. Hopefully coding will reach everywhere in the world. And I felt like it's going to be a really exciting world where, you know, everyone could benefit from the wealth creation of the internet. Everyone would be connected. There will be entrepreneurs all over the world. Computers will sh reshape society in a positive way. And I was really motivated to like help make that happen. Basically, the shift to the digital age, I felt like was not complete and needed to, to be completed. And I joined Facebook, worked on Android because Facebook was, those rumors that were working on a, like an Android-like OS. They built the home screen for Android. They were investing a lot in Android. And Android was growing like crazy in the developing world. And so I worked on Android for a little bit. And then, you know, the development experience was so, so frustrating. You would change one line of code. It takes 15 minutes to compile. Like, this sucks. Like, you know, who's solving this? And there was a team at the company called Catalyst that was, that was taking React and putting it on mobile. So they were creating something called React Native. It wasn't called that at the time. I did a couple other stints uh, on the photos team, things like that at Facebook, but eventually became you know, one of the founding engineers on the React Native project. So React Native is now the top framework for making uh, JavaScript cross-platform React applications. So Discord, Shopify, all these apps are on React Native Airbnb at some point. And in here, I saw another, you know, another thing go from zero to dominant in a, like a span of four or five years. That time at Facebook was very, very special. Like it was like a, dare I say, like mini Bell Labs of sorts. There was these uh, really senior people at Facebook who were giving a lot of freedom to to make and invent things. And I, jo I joined that team and that, you know, we made React. We also made Jest. We took Babel from an open source project and made it, made it the, the de facto Babel compiler. Other people on the adjacent teams made GraphQL other databases. It was like an explosion of open source technology, especially around web development that sort of, that became the default stack now for, for web development. And it was, it was a really, really fun time. And I got to, to lead a team that was building a lot of the infrastructure for the teams. But then my role came to a natural conclusion. There was like some shift in priorities at the, at the company and people were starting to leave. So 2015, early 2016, I was looking for something else and I was like, you know, whatever happened to this, like online coding thing and hi, my wife and, you know, a designer and co-founder now was looking for projects to work on and, and we're like, you know, let's check out what happened to Replit. So I went to, on Google analytics, never looked at it in like five years. And I was like, wow, there's like couple thousand people using this a month. Like, you know, it's pretty buggy. We haven't developed it in a real long time. And, and she's like, well, let's, let's build some, some things. I'm like, all right, you know, I have a bunch of ideas. She's like, no, let's actually talk to people. And so, you know, she brought in that like UX user centric discipline. And when we started talking to people, we found that 
a lot of the people using it were students, teenagers, teachers, that sort of thing. I was like, all right, that, that wasn't what I expected. I expected mostly programmers like myself. And, and then we started building features that, that made the system slightly more powerful, but without destroying the things that made it special, which is this accessible, simple system. Yeah. Until today, Repl is, is a hundred, a thousand times more powerful than in 2016, but it is not much more complex. In some places, it's way easier than it used to be even. And that's actually a very tough challenge in, in software to make something that is uh, increasingly more powerful while holding constant uh, the complexity. Apple does that really well. Everyone else sucks at it. You see software that used to be fast and simple and everything like that. And over the years, it gets bloated and, and becomes slow and things like that. And one of the things that makes Replit hard is this, is this tension and how we navigate it. And I think we've navigated it pretty well so far. So what is Replit? And I know that's like the normal question that you'd ask here, but specifically, like, what is Replit and what isn't it? Like, how do you avoid the bloat while you increase complexity? Yeah, actually, it turns out it's a it's a tough question. I think when you invent something to, like totally new, it's really hard to compare it to something else. Like we see people struggling with the question of like, what is Twitter all the time? It's been around for many years. It's something very unique. Nobody knows what it really is. And so like defining things that are new and unique actually turn out to be hard. What we've sort of landed on is like Replit is, is ultimately a computer and OS in the cloud that is focused on creation. So, you know, most computers today are focused on consumption. Like the first thing you do is you install a bunch of apps or, you know, read things on them. Whereas Replit is a computer, the first thing you do is write a program for it. And the way we're building it, most of the time we're thinking about the infrastructure and the primitives of this computer. And it's about delivering this cloud computer anywhere on the world on any device. And so the idea is that you should be able to get this creative com computer in the cloud everywhere, including on your phone in the middle of nowhere. And it should be really fast and it should give you all the tools necessary to build something compelling and ship it, meet other people, build with them, and eventually be able to monetize and build businesses on top of this technology. And so I think the, the one-liner could be something like the collaborative creative computer in the cloud is really what, what captures most of what Replit is. But, but there's more to it. There's the community aspect to it, which is increasingly an important part of it. Maybe the collaborative word kind of captures some of that, but it doesn't capture the, the full thing. But, but generally, that's sort of the, in the abstract, that's, that's the best to describe it. I mean, one of the tricky things about Replit is is like multiple companies in one. It's like it's like an IDE company, it's a cloud infrastructure company, and it's a social network community company, and now maybe even an AI company, but but that's that remains to be seen. How do you think about sequencing all of that? Or like you know, it sounds like you started with kind of the IDE piece, but like how do you think about when the right time is to add new pieces on and and when to make it more complex, when to cut back, all of that kind of nitty-gritty? Yeah, you know, I, I think, again, it, it should be goal-oriented, like we talked about earlier. I mean, our goal is to be the one place where you go and you write your first line of code all the way to your first application, to your first business. 
we've done a good job at your first line of code. There's more to do there. We're, we're building native mobile app now. We're making our app more reliable in certain network conditions. We're reaching more and more people who are writing the first line of code. We're building educator tools to make it easier. So there's the first line of code. And, and so that's, that's, that's a big thing that that'll continue to be uh, an, an effort that we do, but it's entering, entering more of the one to end phase. The place where we're more on the zero to one is that is the creation aspect. So, okay, we built a place where people want to learn to code. Now we need to build a place where people want to build. And, you know, if you go to the site today, you can see a trending module with, with what people are building. And there's like a, this social network feed aspect of it where you can like and fork and remix and interact with other people. And, you know, that aspect is still half-baked. We still haven't like nailed it completely. Then there's like the hosting aspect. Like you can write an application, actually host it and run it on, on Replit. That's also more zero to one, I would say. And we're like missing a lot of features. We're, we're underpowered there. We're, um, we're not working very well. I would say you want to, you want to go as fast as you can towards like the, the complete vision. But at the same time, you want to make sure the value you've already built is sort of evenly distributed. And I don't think we've done a great job at it in the past just because we want to run as fast as we can towards the harder and harder problems and to solve more and more technical problems. And that, that created a lot of defensibility for Replit. You know, we're way ahead of anything else out there. But at the same time, like we are not very good at like actively growing or marketing our thing. And we leave a lot on the table in terms of people that can value out of it today. So we're trying to adjust that a little bit and focus maybe 30, 40% of our effort more on scaling and then maybe 30% on core improvement and then 30%. So a third scale, a third core improvement and a third invention. Historically, we've been 80% invention all the time. And I think there are downsides to a culture like that that I didn't really internalize at the start. One is that nobody wants to work on easy things. The The cachet comes from like inventing something new, but you leave a lot on the table in terms of UX, in terms of growth, in terms of everything when, when you don't have a culture that wants to do like wants to grow the thing at all costs. I really do think it's a good base to build a base on innovation because that's the thing that's going to get you the zero to one. But to do the one-to-end correctly, you need to bring in a new set of people that really care about scaling. And I think now we're hiring growth and marketing and growth engineering and product engineering to focus more on scaling. But, you know, we're still like, most of my day-to-day is, is like the 10-year like roadmap. This is the perfect place then to, to talk about the fact that, you know, I think aside from A16Z, where I'm an advisor, you've maybe hired more incredibly talented people over the past few months than any other company in tech. Obviously there was the round, I wrote about it. And so there's money in the bank, which is great, but like money in the bank at a lot of companies and you haven't seen that flurry of kind of talent and hiring, like what the hell has been going on? Because it feels like I just literally again this morning saw a tweet of somebody else joining Replit. And so it feels like every day somebody talented is joining the company. What's going on there? Yeah, I think the the work we've done around the time we've uh, talked to you and like the vision doc that we wrote, the updated mission, the company strategy, I call it narrative building. We've done a lot of narrative building recently. And even this idea of like Replit as a computer, that like what we arrived at, it's actually very hard. 
like most, again, like most companies do a shitty job at like understanding what they are. And like the taglines become like totally, Discord is a place. Imagine a place. <laughs> like these people totally given up on, on trying to describe what Discord is. And, and you, you see it all over, amazing products, but they sort of give up on trying to explain the worldview, what they're trying to achieve and, and all of that stuff. And I found that we really need to spend a lot of time doing that. So last year around the time or constructing the narrative for fundraising and, and all of that, I spent a lot of time just writing and thinking. We did a lot of exercises internally. And so that edifice of things, whether it's the, you know, it's your, your article, which helped a lot. It's the operating principles, how we work. We, we published that, the new mission, the new strategy, uh, all these things got people really interested and in, okay, this is a much bigger thing than I thought it is. And I, I want to at least interview for this company, see, see what's going on there. Cause, cause that, that is incredibly ambitious. The other thing that, that happened is I think talent density is something that people can detect from the outside. And, and if you're very disciplined about making sure that there, there's a ton of competence and talent density at, at a company, then it'll be a self-fulfilling loop. And so we're getting a lot more talented, talented people interested in Replit. And we crossed some kind of uh, threshold that, that made uh, hiring easier because we have, we've collected all these talented people in, in, in one place. Just finally, like the, we also talk a lot about the technical challenges and people are attracted to that. We did a conference recently and talked about our plans and also being totally transparent. Like what we talked about being authentic online, like we're trying to be really authentic. Like I talk about what we're trying to achieve, what we see at Replit. Us to talk about how risky the opportunity is and how hard what we're building is. Like, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. I don't think that Replit is... Replit has already succeeded and not, not just because, not just to like keep us motivated or whatever. No, actually like, you know, there's a good chance that we, we might not make it and some version of make it either getting sold early or dying or something like that. But we're very honest about these things. And again, people are attracted to authenticity. Well, yeah, I mean, it's this band of, band of like kind of just talented, competent people going up against Microsoft would be like kind of the biggest player in this space. So yeah, nothing is nothing is guaranteed when you're playing against Microsoft. Do you lean into things like, you know, you see this talent density forming. Do you like build structures around that where you like there's referral programs is like a, a dumb, simple way to think about it. Like, are there things that you're doing on the kind of like HR and people side to lean into the fact that you have this magical talent density? Or is it just like this natural force that is attracting people? We're actually struggling quite hard with that right now. So again, you mentioned this like band of talented people. I was, I was reading, I think Austin tweeted about the, the constitution or bill of rights and it, in it, they talk about a well-regulated militia. I was like, that's a great name for like an early stage startup. But like, yeah, it's, it's kind of like this, this, this you know, hyper-motivated, super aggressive group of people. And then when you start scaling up a little bit, you reach 50, 100 people, you need some structures to get things done, especially cross teamwork when design, infrastructure, product, marketing, like need to collaborate on something, that's actually quite hard. And there are all these ways people have, have worked around it. What I will say is that our, our process so far has been, everything has a owner, you know, some companies called DRI. The DRI really have a lot of power to drive things. The general direction is set 
by me, but the ideas are generally bottom up. So everyone can, can propose ideas. And when given the green light, they can run with, with their ideas and recruit internally and get resources and really kind of be entrepreneurial and push the idea forward. This, this breaks in some cases. What we're seeing right now is that especially when, again, especially when it's like a cross-team effort. And, and so we're trying to layer in some, some organization. But ultimately, it's about you know, what people say, like um, capturing lightning in a, in a bottle or like really figuring out what's working keeping that and then layering in principles to to actually make collaboration better and easier. For the most part, Lep internally has not been super collaborative. Like we, it's just like everyone is a, like a mini dictator of their project that like doesn't work at a certain scale. So maybe if you asked me from a year from now, we would have uh, figured it out. One thing I want to always fall back on is that if we create structures and processes and things like that, People should be able to escape them at their own you know, discretion. Like if you see that the process is not working for you and you're working for it, like leave it, you know, and just, just, just get it done. That's the most important thing. That's going to be, I, I, you need to write about this at some point because that's going to be such an interesting balance of like how you do that without it just devolving into complete anarchy again. That sounds ideal that there's like the right amount of structure and then people can get out when they need to. But I guess it all comes down to having the right people on the team who know how to work within it, but take responsibility when they need to and not just devolve. I don't know. Yeah. These decentralized structures in general are you know, super, super difficult. And so you're trying to like do a little bit, sounds like of a decentralized thing internally where everybody's able to kind of create their own thing. Like it looks like the web, the replit web, but just inside. Oh, so another thing we're doing is we're building Replit and Replit. We're going to a place where we're building Replit and Replit. Right now, we moved to something called Nix, which is working as our like you know underlying package manager that allows us to build different environments on Replit. So we moved an entire class of things, which is how we build languages, from the platform itself to on top of the platform. So the more things we we move to be what we call in programming bootstrapped, meaning you're, you're using the thing to build the thing, the better our collaboration gets, the more we're dogfooding, the more we're building things for ourselves. So that's a big milestone. I think we're going to hit it in the next year, which is Replit's totally built on, on Replit. And, and that'll help us maintain our culture of moving fast, it layers in collaboration to be, to be to- totally seamless. And, and I think it's as much a tools problem as it is a, you know, culture organization problem. Every iconic company comes up with their own ways of doing things. You know, Google did the whole OKRs thing. Amazon had all, all these principles like the two pizza principle yep. and the, the API. And, you know, so I, I think we'll also invent our own. And also it's important to be somewhat nihilistic about these things. Because there's no silver bullet. There's no nirvana. Like every organization will suck to some extent. The idea is like how to make it for the individual, for the high performer especially, how to make it so that they can escape the suckiness when they need to. I love that. You mentioned scaling and kind of like growing up as a company and spending less time on innovation and more time on scaling. Now you're talking about what is now, you know, an $800 million company building on top of Replit. Like when do you start turning on just like, enterprise sales. Is that a goal at some point that like other companies of similar sizes and larger end up just building everything on Replit and like you're going after the king? Or do you want to go just kind of like bottoms up and ride it and be able to keep them as they become Replit size? 
so fundamental belief is that the future of software is one where there is no difference between a hacker kid in a remote part of the world and a multinational corporation in Silicon Valley. Like, I don't think, I don't think like Windows is the same whether you're in Silicon Valley or you're in Africa, right? A lot of things are are the same. And, and, and so in the same way, I felt like the coding slash learning dichotomy was not helpful. I really don't think that the way we think about enterprise enterprises building software versus individuals is not is not that helpful of a dichotomy. So I think if we get the individuals, we get the enterprises because enterprises are made of individuals. And, and, and so let's just make something that is super compelling that programmers everywhere from every walk, walk of life want to use. And if we did that, then we will reach a place where the enterprise unlocks itself almost naturally. Like, Right now, some are knocking at the other door, but product market fit is so violent when it happens. And so when it happens, we'll know. Right now, it hasn't happened yet. And when people, people are bringing Repl to their work, but they're using it as an auxiliary tool. But, you know, it's important to be honest with ourselves like, and not delude ourselves. They're not using it as a core part of their workflow. When that happens, we'll know about it because people will start asking for things. People will knock on our door. People would want to pay us. People, The plan right now is really just make the product better, scale the infrastructure, remove some of the limitations in the product. And we're going to be really focused on the individual and you know until that natural expansion sort of happens. So what does, and, and we'll wrap it up here, and we're going to loop crypto into your answer too, because I know yeah. you have kind of different thoughts on it, but like, what does Replit look like in five years? And what does this kind of like software economy built on top of Replit look like? Fundamentally, the way we think about software today, a lot of our models of the world is, is borrowed from industrial analogies. So look at the way we do education. So the way we do education is you, you, have, you have first grade, second grade. It's this assembly line, right? This pipeline, you should be doing this. First grade teacher teaches that, hands off to second teacher teaches that. You go through an assembly line and then and then at the end you're you're this like blob of thing that looks like all the other things and and you get plugged into into the work or factories or whatever. It's a very sort of industrial way of thinking about things that I invested in this company called Synthesis that is bringing more of a networked approach to education where kids connect with each other to solve tough simulation games and problems. And that's how they learn. And I think that sort of transition, it's going to happen across the board. The way we build software today, we call it a stack. We put things together as a stack. We build the stack and then we ship it to AWS and AWS runs that stack for us. And I think software will go into a more networked way of building things. I think things are going to be more real time. I think people will be able to build, uh, hook into each other's applications on the fly. And I think the way people will construct applications is by plugging into a certain network of code, network of programs that's, that's already running. One of the things we really want to think deeply about at Replit is, you know, GitHub is a network of static code or dead code. It's not running, right? But it's a network of code. And that made it very powerful. 
because now you can bring that code into a stack. Replit is a network of live code. You don't really have to bring it into, into a stack. You can run on top of each other's code and mix them and, and match them in very interesting ways. One of the things I'm really interested about what happened in the crypto world is the idea that the internet now has the concept of value. And I think that's a fundamental shift. I think actually, if you think about it, it's sort of a flaw that the internet did not have a concept of value in the, in the early days. And that resulted in a lot of problems. I think we talked about it earlier. And, and now that the internet has, has this concept, the question is like, how does it affect everything we build? And one thing I think that's going to happen is the way we compose software and we compose services will have this underlying exchange of value. So I think when I build applications, it's not going to be like putting together various open source libraries and, and, and infrastructure. It's going to be more like hooking into live applications that could potentially charge per API call or per service provided. And you get to this concept of what people have called in the past grid computing. And, and I think it's going to be the seamless collaboration, even people be between people who do not know each other, to build ever more interesting applications and, and things like that. It's already happening in the sort of smart contract space, right? You can hook into a smart contract. You can call a smart contract. You pay a lot of money, but, you, but no one tells you what, what code you can reuse and remix. And so that, that's, a, that's a very interesting concept. And I think, I think we could do something like that in, in Replit. My view on crypto is like, <clears throat> I'm not a big fan of the, of the noise it brings like, and, the, and sort of the decadence it, it brings. There are more focused ways of building these ideas than, than by you know, doing an ICO or a coin. And then that brings its own politics. It brings a lot of spam. It brings a lot of issues. And I, I'd much rather get to a place where get to this like future of software place in a, in a more focused manner, I guess. We're, we're recording this in the middle of this great tech crash and great crypto crash and everything, you know, prices are, are coming down. One of the benefits though, is that I'm going to stop getting so many NFT projects DMing me, asking me to promote their project, like which happens 20 times a day. I, I do think that it's actually going to be a really good time for the serious builders. And my, my definition of serious is wider. Like I think there's value in some of the, like, the really thoughtful yeah. NFT projects and, and yeah. like kind of showing the world how these primitives can be used and all of that. I, I do think there's a lot of value there, but there's so much BS that is going to, to hopefully disappear that I'm really excited for that piece. I guess I, I lied and, you know, we're going to have to meander one last question, which is like in a market like this, like, how are you thinking about it? You're obviously well capitalized right now, but like, how do you think about the right balance of conservatism and aggressiveness and just like, what, what do you do? How do you posture yourself in a market like this? I think founders need to practice more reserve right now. Speaking of the market, like one thing, when, when this started happening, when like in 2020, I, I, I looked around and it seemed, okay, I was like, okay, cash is now abundant, like literally abundant. Anyone, you know, people were joking about universal basic seed round, which I think really was, was the case. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's run this experiment. So like, so what, what happens when, when you have that? And, and maybe there are things that were funded that were like moonshots that couldn't get, get funded before. Now they're funded. Maybe that's good. But for the most part, it, it caused a huge misallocation of capital. And, and people were not very careful in, in how they, they invested. 
And I think that leads to misallocation of labor as well. And then the, like the people who are building something, thing, valuable things, like you said, are not getting access to the talent that they need to build these things because talent is dispersed across all these you know, different projects. And so what's happening now is part of the boom bust cycles. And I think, I think, you know, a lot of companies might go under or maybe weren't doing a lot of interesting things. A lot of kind of projects will disappear. But the good thing about it is there's going to be a lot more talent in the market to, to acquire. There's going to be a lot more focus. And I'm really looking forward to that, looking forward to, to focus and looking forward to accelerating hiring. And so for us, we're again, like we're, we're in a good position, but we're, we're watching it and, and we're, we're, we're trying to maybe bring more discipline to how we, how we treat cash now that, that it's the cost of cash is like higher. So, so watching carefully, but like, we're not going to change any plans uh, for this year other than like, just being slightly more careful. I love it. I mean, I guess you need kind of these wipeouts too for the next cycle to come through. And so for this world that you're talking about building where people are building things anywhere and hooking into each other, that's a whole new paradigm that needs to come in a new cycle. So hopefully the next cycle, 2024, 2025 is the replit cycle. I'm done. Thanks so much for, for coming on. This was, I think, four times longer than any podcast I, uh, we've done yet. But I think that's an expression of how much fun this, this was. So thank you for doing this. My pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. A big fan of, of from the first from the first blog I've read on Not Boring and, and just that the friendship we have today. So I'm uh, appreciative of it. Thank you for having me.